Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. In today's episode, I chat with Katrina Richardson. Katrina is an accredited mental health social worker and clinical family therapist, and she'll give us a little bit more of a bio on what she's up to. Uh, In this episode, we talk about working with families in a school context. So when we have young people who are maybe school refusing, some of the complexities, challenges and rewards of bringing families into that role and into that work. Uh, She talks a little bit about her experience working in a medical model through a psychiatric uh, psychiatric team at a hospital and some of the challenges that come with incorporating family work into what might have been a traditionally single person sort of one-on-one type work so I hope you enjoy my interview with Katrina. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast today I'm talking with Katrina Richardson. Katrina welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you give the listeners a bit of a background into uh, who you are, uh, what you're doing and um, the things you're kind of putting out into the world? Yeah, sure. So I'm an accredited mental health social worker and a clinical family therapist. Um, and I divide my time across public mental health and private practice. So in my role within public mental health, I work in a child and youth uh, mental health service. So my background is in youth psychiatry. I've been working in youth psychiatry for uh, 15 years now um, and working in private practice for about uh, nine years, I think. Um, I'm bad with timelines. Uh, So I try and keep a fair bit of variety in my work. So... The work I do privately um, is quite different to the work that I do in youth psychiatry. Um, At the moment, I'm really interested in couples work and that's been my um, latest undertaking. I feel for me, it's a bit like the final frontier. Uh, was the scariest aspect of practice and so I decided to kind of take that on over the last couple of years. Um, And, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I... How I divide my time at the moment. I've got an equal love for um, working in the public sector. Um, I've got a really strong, I guess, social justice ethic. Um, and my belief is that everybody, regardless of socioeconomic status or um, financial position, has the right to have access to good mental health care, same as physical health care, which is why I've um, continued to work in that that um, context or practice setting. That sounds really interesting. When you um, first started doing family therapy, how did you work with, um, with children and their families in the psychiatry team systemically? So that role doesn't, opt, I imagine, wasn't entirely a family therapy-based role. Mm-hmm. So how did you bring in components of that as you started learning about them throughout the course? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Um, I'm lucky enough to work in a service where systemic work is fairly embedded in practice. So from the outset of our engagement with um, young people and families, there's an expectation conveyed at point of, uh, I guess, intake or point of assessment that um, parents will be actively involved in treatment. 
Um, and so bringing my lens as a family therapist, I extend that to um, an expectation uh, that the whole family will be involved in treatment. That's kind of part of my contracting. And that might look a whole lot of different ways. So it might not necessarily mean that the whole family is coming in for family sessions all the time. It might be separate child-focused parent work and then separate work with the young person. But I'm always holding that systemic lens, which is um, even though the family, the whole family might not be in the room physically, they're in the room with me metaphorically. So I'm thinking about family relationships or the relationships within the family as being my client as much as the identified patient. How does that sit with the different disciplines in a hospital? Because from my experience working in hospital, we all have the same goal, but sometimes very different ideas of how that gets implemented. So how does that either align with or kind of conflict with maybe some of the other people that work around the team or even within the team? Yeah, look, I, I won't lie to you, working within psychiatry and within the medical model is very challenging um, and thank goodness I'm not a sole social worker within the team. Um, that would be really hard. So I have the support of other people within my discipline to, um, I guess, buffer me. It, the importance of working with like-minded people when you're working in a context that where the medical model is so dominant, I, I can't um, emphasise enough how important that is. There are inevitably tensions between um, a systemic focus and an individual focus. Um, I think um, as a practitioner, you have to find your own way to make your peace with that really. So I don't you know, I don't believe in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's room for an individual um, approach. Um, and I think kind of the best approach to um, acute mental illness in children and adolescents is a marrying of the two. So being able to bring a systemic lens, but also being able to bring that individual lens when needed. Because, um, you know, there is kind of uh, individual pathology at play, but it's how do you kind of hold that dual focus while you're working with the young person and the family? You've put it so well. <laughs> Just to throw you a curly one, can you remember any cases where once you learnt either a new theory or a new model that was very systems-based, you had this light bulb moment, you thought, oh my gosh, I never thought that, I never saw that this way, this has changed my, my practice or this has changed the way I view this family? Oh my goodness, so many of those moments throughout my career. Um, many, many, many early on um, and I remember... When I was undertaking my, um, my master's in clinical family therapy, a large part of the course is around supervised practice. So we had small supervision groups where we would see families or the rest of our um, group and our uh, uh, like tutor, I guess, was behind the screen. And I remember working with this one family and um, she came in and spoke to me afterwards and she said, the questions that you're asking, the information that you're getting, that's not for you. It's for the other people in the family. And I, that was a real light bulb moment for me. I'm like, oh my God, of course. This is not about me hearing about the problem or hearing something different. It's about me asking questions that releases new information into the system and helps these family members to see and understand each other differently. That was massive for me.
I have moments like that where you feel like you're the translator. Almost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in couples work or I find often with parents and teenagers, sort of the restrictions that parents are placing, the kids are seeing that is they don't trust me. It's not fair. And you literally have to translate the, I don't want you to do this to, I love you. I care about you. I'm really worried because this really scary thing happened to me when I was young or to our friend and I don't want anything to happen to you. And that just gets lost. And it's assumed that the parents or someone thinks, of course they know that it's so obvious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, um, I mean, a lot of uh, my work within youth mental health will be around young people who've had, uh, who've attempted to take their life um, or have had serious suicide attempts or have um, pretty high level suicidal ideation. And one of those kind of translator moments that I think comes up all the time is when you've got parents who are really anxious about their young person's safety and so become uh, more inquisitive or more intrusive and in response to that you have a young person who shuts down and withdraws and a conversation I have a lot of the time is around you'd really like mum and dad to back off a little bit and give you a bit of space in order to do that they probably need to hear a little bit more from you around what's going on in your head. If you can just tell them a little bit more, they'll be less anxious and they'll be able to back off. And mum and dad, you know, I'm sure once you hear a little bit more about what your young person's thinking and feeling, you'll feel less, less anxious and more able to give them a bit, bit more space. That conversation is one that I have a lot. Yeah, me too. But I think it's, I found that they've been, because I'm a family therapist in training, they're really good skills for just looking at how we all interact. They're not just for families, but it really makes you realise the kind of just the patterns of um, how people try to get their needs met or feel heard. And if someone, like the golden rule used to be, you know, do to others what you want done to yourself. And now it's like, no, do for them what they want. Oh, absolutely. And I found that that was such a mind-blowing moment where, you know, I think of families where one person maybe comes home from work really tired and they might just need half an hour of quiet because we don't know what they've had on that day. Mm -hmm. And someone else has maybe had a, a more isolated job and it's like, oh, someone's home, yay, we can chat. And mm -hmm. if you're trying to chat to the person who needs some space, it's chaos. Oh, my goodness. Early in my marriage, um, my husband and I would have these kind of conversations all the time because I would give to him in the way that I wanted to be nurtured. Um, and he, he was like, no, no, that's not what I want. That's not what I need. I need this other different thing. And so falling, uh, falling out of the habit of trying to give in the way that I wanted to receive um, was, a big, was a big one for me. So on a side note, those listening, if you're interested in learning more about this, Google the five love languages and do the quiz. It's really fun. It talks a little bit about this, but we won't go into couples work now, but that's a really good little quiz. <laughs> uh, so what kind of, um, what got us linked in was an article you wrote around family therapy um, for child and adolescent school refusal. Mm. So I was really interested to hear a bit more about what are some of the things that got you interested in working with school refusal more systemically um, and maybe clarifying a few of the definitions between like truancy, school refusal, absenteeism, like some of those things. Yeah, sure. I think what got me interested in, in it was the um, what seemed to be an increase in prevalence, um, just seeing so many young people present with this problem 
and really also noticing how difficult it seemed to treat. Um, a lot of the time um, families would come in with quite a, a, almost like a backwards kind of understanding of the problem, which was that in order for their young person to get to, back to school, they, their anxiety had to be fixed or their depression had to be fixed and then as an outcome of that, they would suddenly get up and uh, head back to school of their own accord. Um, and or families would come to us having had their young person in individual therapy for a really long time and that just wasn't kind of fixing the problem. So that my interest grew out of, well, hang on a minute, what, what is it that we seem to be doing or what is it that I seem to be doing that is working well and what do I do that doesn't seem to work so well with this problem? And so through um, practice um, and experience, I, I guess I kind of developed my own kind of guidelines or working model of um, what did seem to kind of work well. There are some really important distinctions between kind of truancy and school refusal. So truancy tends to be more um, parents tend to be unaware that the young person's not going to school and it tends to be associated more with antisocial behaviour. Whereas school refusal um, is gen generally parents are aware of the young person not going. They're not skipping school to go out and hang out with mates or graffiti or take drugs. They're skipping school and they're staying in bed or they're at home with their family and it tends to be a presentation that's more couched in anxiety. Usually think of it, it's usually around uh, separation anxiety or um, to do with something in the school environment that's aversive. So if they've got undiagnosed learning problems, if they're struggling with bullying, um, can be a combination of the two, but I tend to find one difficulty tends to be more dominant than the other. Um, you mentioned that you kind of use some of the Maudsley model for treatment of anorexia to inform mm -hmm. some of the work you do. Tell me how you kind of, um, I guess, fused those different theories together. Yeah. So I've been working quite uh, for quite a long time with young people with um, anorexia using FBT or the Maudsley model. I think I did my initial training in that approach in 2005 or 2006. Um, that's quite a while ago. One of the fundamental premises of that um, treatment approach is um, that parents take charge of the part of life that the young person is not managing for themselves. In the case of anorexia, that's eating. Um, and exercise sometimes. Um, in the case of school refusal, it's getting up and going to school. So it's about raising parental anxiety to a useful level. So that can mean different things for different families. So um, for parents who are totally overwhelmed by the problem and really anxious, it's about bringing them down and containing them a little bit. For parents or families who become a little bit used to the problem and a bit complacent, it's actually about making them a bit more anxious. And then it's very clearly charging them with responsibility for fixing the problem. So nobody's nobody's uh, nobody's to blame, but everybody's responsible is kind of one of the key messages. Um, and it's not about the young person um, finding a way to do it for themselves because actually at the moment they can't. The problem is too big for them. So how do you help them out with it? What are some of the, um, I guess, common challenges in doing that or some of the resistance you might get from families? Um, it's really common if 
the young person has been through the medical system, which is which is not uncommon because um, they may present with um, somatic complaints like gastrointestinal disturbance. So they might come have come through hospital setting and eventually received um, a diagnosis of anxiety that the they will have also received the message that the best treatment is say CBT um, and that they need to be in individual therapy um, and and often parents have been sidelined or excluded from that process so they can feel either disempowered or resentful or as though the responsibility doesn't sit with them so really trying to turn that understanding on its head um, I mean if you can imagine you know a family kind of comes in and they've had a you know a one or a two or even three year kind of journey where they've been told this is an individual problem and your kid needs to fix it themselves and then they come and meet with me and I'm kind of saying well actually no it's not and you guys are the ones that need to fix it that's a real shift for parents to make so that's a big challenge yeah, I can I can imagine it also fluctuates between that idea of um, here's my child, fix them and things will be okay, that real kind of um, this is the identified patient and you've just got to do your thing and if you fix them, it'll all be better. Yeah. And then some families who are just so sensitive to that shame and feel like maybe I've done this. Like, So I think I liked what you said around you've got to get that to a healthy anxiety of we know that anxiety and performance have a bit of a bell curve relationship where that right amount gets you performing quite well and too little is useless and too much is useless. Absolutely. You've got to hit that sweet spot of stress. I think one of the other challenges is the, um, the relationship with school. So when you've got a young person who's refusing to attend, the relationship between the family and school can become quite strange. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for you to talk with schools and find that they might have kind of a negative view of parents or family, you know, just thinking, well, you know, what, what are these parents doing that they're letting their kids stay home and what's going on there? Or that the parents likewise feel like, you know, school haven't been proactive enough, um, you know, they haven't given us enough information. Um, so oftentimes it's about being able to bring young person, family and school together um, and facilitating greater understanding of, of the strengths and constraints that sit with both parties. So for those um, early career kind of social workers or allied health professionals working in maybe a school setting, what are some of the things that you, like some of the theories or ideas you need to kind of keep in the back of your mind? Like some that come to mind for me are um, sort of lifestyle, life stage processes, um, sort of adolescent development. So knowing the difference between what you do for someone who's maybe in grade six, first year 12, the language changes, the expectations of what they understand. What are some of the other kind of frameworks or theories that um, people should kind of read up on or keep in their mind when they're working within um, a school setting or with young people in that space? Mm -hmm. um, I think the family life cycle, um, in addition to um, kind of child and adolescent development, so what's normal for different ages and stages, is also thinking about the family life cycle. So 
a family with young children is quite different to a family with adolescents. It's quite different to a family with older adolescents or with children who have left home. And what's appropriate for a family and the way that the family functions at those different stages of development um, will be different. Um, but also with each of those transitions comes stressors and adjustments. So it's, it's really hard for parents to move from being you know, parents of primary school aged children um, where they're used to being kind of very involved and very making a lot of the decisions, I guess, to then having to navigate that process of moving towards being parents of adolescents where they have to kind of dip in and out. So sometimes they have to be really hands-on and other times hands-off. It's about, you know, checking out, well, th there's a gradual handing over of um, responsibility and a gradual increase in independence. And it's a bit like um, you have to moderate your involvement according to how well your young person seems to be managing that. So that's a tense time and there can be lots of pushing and pulling and, you know, parents will frequently say, you know, my 15-year-old is like a 30-year-old 30, 30 one minute and a five-year-old the next. Um, and so they have to, the demands on the parents or the family are constantly moving and changing. I've heard it put as, um, which I thought was quite funny, the parents move from being manager to consultant. Yeah. And if you don't handle that transition well, it can cause that conflict because part of the development of adolescence is to seek independence, is to find out where you fit in the world, is to take risks. They are, they are developmentally appropriate. And if parents try to still maintain that manager role when someone's trying to learn those things, that can create more conflict. But then not being involved at all can almost come across as not caring. So that sweet yeah. spot of being like the consultant, like I'll let you take these kind of risks in a safe way but I'm here when things go wrong or if you need to learn a little bit more or you know and I thought that was a really nice way of putting it from manager to consultant oh that's a lovely metaphor and you're right if you don't um if you don't manage that well what you'll end up with is a hostile takeover <laughs> and you will you will find yourself on the receiving end of something that's not so pleasant <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> Um, any other kind of things people can focus on when working with um, school refusal in a school setting? So one of the things I've often done is look at um, the school refusal assessment scale and try and understand what it is that's for young people. That is it that school's kind of blah, but home's really fun? Is it that home's kind of blah, school's kind of blah, but it's the trip in the middle on the public transport? Like it helps you kind of work out where that anxiety lies. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, that's really helpful. I think it, it's about developing a solid formulation of the school refusal. Um, and part of that is what you're talking about. Is it um, predominantly kind of about really wanting to be at home or really not wanting to be at school? And what are the reasons for that? So that's part of the formulation. And then the other part of the formulation is what are the family dynamics that surround this problem that either um, continue to reinforce it or can be used to mitigate against it. So my advice for social workers working within a school setting would be get parents and families in as soon as you can, earlier the better. What we know about this problem is the sooner you address it, the better the prognosis. But once it's entrenched, it's really hard 
uh, it's a really hard problem to change. I know that that's a real challenge. Look, my hats go off to um, social workers that work in school settings. I think their job is so tough because often working within schools, they're really encouraged to work directly one-on-one -on -one with the students not always encouraged to be bringing parents or family in. And sometimes also um, parents and families don't understand the mandate of a school social worker. Um, and if they're getting contact to kind of come in, they're kind of thinking, why? What, 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 you know, what, why am I being asked to kind of come into school? So look, hats off to people working in that context, but bring families and, and parents in as soon as you can. Do you think some of that also has to do with the kind of traditional ideas of maybe social work, meaning sort of child protection and welfare? So if the school social worker is calling, it's like, oh, my God, do they think I've abused my children? Or like they, they kind of jump to the worst case scenario because they're not used to being involved in that change. Yeah, look, I think it's a lot about that. Uh, I think it's a misunderstanding about about who social workers are and what we do. It's, it hails back to the, you know, the bad old days of the, the, the social worker in the black cap and cape, you know, whisking up, whisking your children away to the group home. Um, and then also a misunderstanding of what school social work is, which is, it's not actually just about, you know, and I think that it comes back to um, kind of an, the, the old truant officers. You know, school social workers don't go chasing kids down and pulling them by their ear back into school. They, they, they do so much more of that. Mm. I've been privileged enough to um, provide consultation to wellbeing teams in secondary schools um, who do, you know, such innovative work from group programs to working one-on-one -on -one, to working with families to helping to develop school policies and processes around student wellbeing. It's, um, I think it's a lot about educating um, families within the school community about what the role of social work and what the role of the wellbeing team is. And I think that's really hard, um, especially in Victoria, we've never really had a mandatory qualification for people working in wellbeing teams in schools. So you mm -hmm. can have someone who is incredibly experienced and very well educated in, you know, social work, psychology, mental health, OT, family work, and then someone who's a teacher who's done maybe a certificate in youth work and the approaches are very different and the support systems are very different. So those roles uh, look completely different from school to school across the whole state. Yeah. And I think the other factor in that is the school culture um, and the school community uh, that can either be really facilitative of innovative work or it can be quite constraining. And I think um, the students I have on placement really feel the constraints because you know just that comment of we've always done it this way as being good enough is it it doesn't quite take anymore mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and I think um as we're recording this we're kind of in the midst of the COVID-19 but the way we used to do things just got turned upside down and people don't like change but they're adapting so it's really interesting to see what people are capable of when they they have to be yeah um, I think, you know, it brings to mind that I'm going to misquote, but, you know, that idea within every crisis there's a seed of possibility or a seed of change. Um, and I think that's true of, of this, of, of this crisis as well. I mean, I hope that I never have to live through something like this again in my lifetime because it's uh, the effects of being so profound, um, both... Um, kind of uh, on people's health, their 
um, mental health, their financial health, the economic implications are going to be huge. Um, but it is forcing us, I think, to reconsider what is really important in life um, and also how we support people and how we deliver services. So I'll be really interested on the other side of this to see how things change. Mm, especially, and it could offer opportunity for school refusal um, where if we're doing a lot of things now online, there might be opportunity that was never thought of before to allow those students to participate in a hybrid school model of some, like we just don't know now what's going to be available, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's exciting times. So considering some of the challenges that come with the medical model, working in psychiatry, um, bringing up parents' anxiety or reducing it, complexity mm -hmm. in schools, what keeps you feeling strong and energised and able to keep doing this work? Because it, it can be exhausting and sometimes mm -hmm. the gains might not come for a while. You might plant the seed and not see the results um, or sometimes you see them instantly. But what, what do you do to keep yourself kind of engaged and motivated and ward off that burnout and compassion fatigue? Mm -hmm. Really good question. It took me such a long time to figure that out. <laughs> um, look, I think uh, my journey towards figuring out what was self-care for me came through uh, learning the hard way, learning through not doing it well, um, which was, you know, at multiple times in my career getting to that point of burnout or near burnout and, and not kind of taking a break until then. The good part of that is I'm really clear now on like what are my signs of burnout. So I know that I'm getting burnt out when I'm not sleeping well, when I have difficulty relaxing, when the work starts to feel more like a chore than a privilege um, and when I start to feel like I'm hearing the same old story again and again rather than actually being curious or tuning into the nuance of this particular family's story or this particular person's narrative. So they're my warning signs. I'm really clear on what they are now. What now stops me from getting to that point? Um, for me, it is exercise, meditation and meaningful connection. So I'm kind of an introvert at heart. So I, I do need a lot of downtime. Um, so I... I'm not re-energised by uh, kind of casual relationships. Um, so those, I'm not a person who has a whole lot of friends. What I have instead are a close group of friends that I feel like I have a really deep connection to. So it's those friendships and my relationship with my husband and my daughter, um, they're the things that really nourish me. Um, and exercise is absolutely essential for me. I feel like I do a job that's very cerebral um, and I really need to get into my body and push my own physical limits. That that really helps me. Um, the guest on the podcast before you um, was sort of saying it took them a little while to realise that their biggest tool in their work is themselves or their soul, their ability to be present and pay attention. So they started to see self-care as a professional necessity rather than a luxury. So to be able to do their job well and be there for each individual client, whether it's the first one in the morning or the last one at the evening, they needed to take care of themselves. And once they shifted their mindset on that, were able to put in stronger boundaries of, no, no, this is important because I love my job. I love the work I do and I can't do it well if I'm not well. 
I completely agree with that. We are our tool of our trade. Um, you know, you can't separate who you are from what you do. If you if you try to, you're a technician. You're not a therapist. Um, so you can sit down and you can practice a particular model um, in a way that's you know uh, professional or mechanical, um, but people feel that. Um, you have to invest of yourself in the work and that is both incredibly rewarding and can be also emotionally really demanding. So I completely agree. You absolutely have to look after yourself. I think also the other challenge for, for health professionals um, or social workers around self-care is a lot of us are drawn to this work because we tend to be bit more selfless or a bit more putting others first or a bit more putting ourselves last so no wonder self-care is really challenging for us so I think for practitioners new to the field my message one of my key messages around self-care would be don't beat yourself up if you're not great at it initially because it's probably not your natural inclination it's um but, you, but do treat it like any other part of practice and dedicate time and energy to getting better at it and developing it. And I often see in a fast-paced environment that's even harder because there's so much competing demand. Mm -hmm. And what I try and get people to reflect on is you can't do the job you love for as many years as you want if you kind of burn the candle at both ends. So, you know, somewhere like a school environment or hospital environment, there's endless amount of work you can do. You, you could be there 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. If you don't put some of those boundaries up, you might only be able to do it for a year or two or five. And then all those other people that you could have helped but can't because you've just burnt out or you've changed jobs mm -hmm. will miss out on all that skill and knowledge you've invested. Absolutely. It's about... Um being there for a marathon and not a sprint. And you know what? It doesn't actually matter how great your employer is or how great the service or the organisation that you work for is. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody saying, do you know what? I was kind of, I was working this hard and I was giving this much. And then I got a tap on the shoulder and somebody said, you know what? Just take a step back. Do a little bit less work. People won't, nobody's going to do it for you. You actually have to, you've got to look after yourself nobody's going to look after you as well as you should. That's good. And yeah, I think that's really good advice that um, you've got to take that proactive step. Mm. What about uh, in terms of professional learning, what are some of the things that um, courses or trainings or peer group supervisions, mentors, what are some of the things that you've kind of brought in to keep your practice current or feel energized? Yep. Um, I have always had clinical supervision I think that's an absolute must so that's really important just one-on-one -on -one. Um, in my role I have the privilege of working as a member of a couple of reflecting teams so a reflective family therapy teams so that's really energizing for me because I'm uh, constantly exposed to and enriched by other people's ways of working and in terms of professional development, I think the best, the best PD is the PD that interests you. So I think once you have a solid sense of who you are as a therapist um, and the kinds of theories and approaches that fit for you, following your interest or your passion 
um, and doing more professional development um, along those lines is the the best thing really uh, I mean there's there's endless amounts of PD that you could do and you know we never stop learning but uh, I think the best professional development I've done has been when I've been really interested or passionate about something then the learning doesn't feel like a chore it feels like um, it almost feels like self-care that's really good <laughs> Uh, any kind of parting words of wisdom or, um, you know, did you want to kind of give a shout out to your private practice if you do? Do you offer supervision or consultation? What are some of the things you offer in your practice? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, sure, I'll give a shout out to my, my private work. So you can find me at www.katrinarichardson.com. Um, I do quite a bit of um, supervision, consultation and training, uh, both in person and via Zoom um, or FaceTime. I'm supervising some people all across Australia at the moment um, and I do develop, um, deliver training for organisations and groups around things like core competencies in youth mental health, um, trauma-informed practice, CBT um, and in my private work I'm doing quite a bit of couples work at the moment um, but see couples, families, adult individuals, adolescents I do child-focused parent work privately, which not too many people do for some reason. Um, What's that? Child-focused parent work. Yeah. Um, it's where you're working with parents to support um, them in their parenting role. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So working with parents to help them help their young person. Um, cool. I do something similar through tuning into teens. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, so as a group program um, and hopefully by the time this recording goes live, I'll be offering it online as well. But, yeah, that's um, that kind of getting it, making almost my role redundant in a way. Yeah, exactly, yeah, because, you know, I could spend 50 minutes once a fortnight with a young person and that, that can have some value, but who's with them the other 23 hours and 10 minutes of the day? Yeah, totally. Um, and I'll put a link to your website in the show notes, the article that we talked about. Um, and if there's any other resources that you think would be of interest, we can pop them in as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank time. you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my interview today with Katrina. So Katrina's written an article which looks at family therapy for child and adolescent school refusal. And you can find a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to Katrina's website. I hope this conversation has sparked or piqued your interest in working more systemically with young people and incorporating some family work or some systems work in supporting young people in their mental health journey or with improving school attendance, with whatever the thing is that comes up for you in your work. Um, I think working systemically can add a lot of value to that. I hope everybody's staying safe and well. At the time of recording, we were kind of in the midst of the COVID-19. So I know this has been pushing a lot of people to their capacity and a lot of families spending a lot more time together in close quarters can bring up a lot of anxiety and a lot of unresolved issues. So my hats go off to those working closely with individuals and families during this very tricky time. I hope you're able to take a bit of time to care for yourself uh, and remember what Katrina said that it's okay if you're not really good at it because we work in a field where we tend to give and give and 
put ourselves and our needs um, a little bit less on the priority list. So it's okay if it's not something you're super good at. Uh, it's something to maybe work towards. And remember to get to keep well and it'll allow you to do your job for a lot longer. So we're in it for the marathon. We're in it for the long haul. So feel free to reach out, uh, get in touch if you want to share with me your experiences, um, putting out a call out for people who want to be on the show. If you're a graduate social worker and you've got some questions, feel free to reach out. If you're a mid-career or a very experienced clinician or social worker and you want to, to share with the audience some of your skills and some of the work that you do, feel free to get in touch. Uh, you can email me at marie, M-A-R-I-E, at insidesocialwork.com. Uh, you can head over to the website insidesocialwork.com uh, or you can uh, find me on uh, LinkedIn or through the Facebook group. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.